Okay, we're going to be in Psalm 32 this morning. You want to open your Bibles. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. How would you answer if I asked you what the greatest need of all mankind is? What's, what's our greatest need? If you ask a handful of people, I, I trust you'd get a handful of answers, right? Some would be very practical and just say straight up, our greatest need is air. No air? I don't know. A minute? Three if you're good? And then pff, you're dead? That's a pretty good response. Others would say, all right, we can assume air. How about water, food, and shelter, the basic necessities of life? If you have these, you can kind of figure out, figure out the rest. We certainly need that, don't we? Others would say, well, yes to all, but how about love, companionship? I mean, you can have water, food, and shelter and be dying on the vine. God's created us to be communal people. We need each other. We need community. We need love. And all these things are certainly true. But you know, when we think biblically, when we start with a holy God where we focused our time last week, and, and we understand the, the big picture storyline of Holy Scripture, so we understand the fall of man, we understand our sin nature, we understand our own sin from this morning, no doubt we would say the greatest need of every single human being is divine forgiveness. We need to be forgiven by God. And this is precisely what we're going to consider this morning as we continue our short summer series, 10 Reasons Jesus Came to Die. And this morning, we're going to dig into the reality that Jesus came to die to enable the forgiveness of all of the sin of all who would trust in Christ. And we're going we're to get at this idea from a few texts, but I want to start with the text that was just read for us, Psalm 32. So if you're not already there, I invite you to turn over to Psalm 32 with me. And I'm going to begin by rereading the first two verses here. Psalm 32. Here we read, 
Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David begins with a pronouncement of blessing. He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Now, I think we can easily miss the beauty of this statement and the first two verses as a whole because, among other reasons, this word blessed is so watered down, right? If somebody has a lot of money, they are blessed, right? Somebody's got a nice car or a nice house, man, that dude is blessed. If somebody's really good in sports, or a fantastic musician, or, or a, a great artist. We, we, we say he, she is really blessed. And sure, there's a level of truth to that, but, but biblically speaking, this idea of being blessed carries with it the meaning of having divine favor resting upon you. And thus, there's an immense happiness, a deep-seated abiding joy that goes along with this idea of being blessed of God. And don't miss who David says is blessed. He here, it's not those who are healthy and wealthy. Though, again, those can be blessings of God. But here, David's clear, the one who is blessed, the one who has God's divine favor resting upon him, is the one who's been forgiven. And we're going to unpack this more as we go, but for now, we need to make sure we're clear on the seriousness and comprehensiveness of sin so that we understand why David says that the one whose sin is forgiven is the one who's blessed. Now, in the first two verses of this text, notice that there's three different words for sin. Blessed is the one whose transgression, there's one, is forgiven. Whose sin, there's two, is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And that's the third one. Now, these words for sin in in some context might have different shades of meaning. But here almost everyone agrees that, that, that David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is bringing all of these together to demonstrate that all sin is in view. In other words, no sin falls outside of what David is talking about here. And this is important. Because we know from elsewhere in the Bible that all sin is a direct affront to God. God is holy. Again, we talked about that last week. He is completely righteous. There is no sin in Him at all. And indeed, He cannot and He will not tolerate sin. In fact, the Bible teaches that all sin will be dealt with to the fullest extent. Which helps us understand why David says that the person whose sin is forgiven is blessed. But but he's not done on this point. Don't miss that he not only talks about the comprehensiveness of sin, but we also see the comprehensive nature of God's forgiveness. And again, three words are used for this idea of forgiveness, one for each of the words for sin. And again, I would argue that The emphasis here is on the amazing scope, the totality, the absoluteness of God's forgiveness. So first, he says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. The word here is literally 
to carry away. It's the same word you would find in Leviticus 16, reading about the Day of Atonement with reference to the scapegoat carrying away our sin. If you don't know that text in Leviticus 16, there are these two goats at this most important time in the Jewish year. One of the goats is killed as a sin offering. The other, the high priest lays his hands upon it and he confesses all of the sins of the people for that year. And then they drive that goat outside of the camp. You have this picture of sin being carried away. And that's what David is wanting us to think of here. And second, we see that our sin is, is, is covered. The specific, the specific word here is not used very often in the Bible with reference to sin. Here, sin is, is, is covered up. You can't see it anymore. There, there, there's something on top of it. Reminds me of an, anal- an analogy often credited to Martin Luther. Now, whether he said it or not, I don't really care because I, I like it a whole lot. Some Lutheran scholars describe a time where he is riding his horse through the fields, the beautiful, like, rolling hills in, in Germany on his way into the city. And he looks out, and it's just gorgeous, right? It's all green. It's in the fall. It's all green before everything dies off. And yet there's brown specks all over the place. Poop. Dunghills. He has that same ride on his horse in the winter after a big blizzard's come through. And he looks out, and he sees these rolling hills. Nothing but beautiful white, not a brown speck out there. He knows what's underneath, and yet it's completely covered. I think that's a good illustration of what David's talking about when he says, blessed is the one whose sin is covered. So, so blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, carried away. Blessed is the man whose sin is covered. And finally, David says, blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Here's the third picture. This time he uses accounting language. And sometimes you might see this translated credited or imputed. The same word is used in Genesis 15, 6, where righteousness was credited or imputed to Abraham. He wasn't really righteous, but it was credited to him. Here you're looking at basically the opposite of that. Here the point is that something really bad, sin in this case, is yours. And yet somehow, in God's accounting, it's not credited or imputed to the account of the one who's blessed. So this is the, in reality, again, right, we're full of sin, but blessed is the one in whom the Lord does not actually credit that sin to your account. Some of you have heard me tell the story about a gracious act by a college professor I had. I was playing college baseball, and we had been on the road for a week straight, And I came back, and we had a major exam in one of my classes. And I tried to borrow notes from a classmate, but apparently they were terrible. Because when I went in to take the test, it was four essay questions, that's it. And I sat down, and my heart sunk because I realized I can't schmooze this. Like, I know none of it. I I can't even write one sentence of anything that's useful to these questions. 
And so I sat there knowing my semester was sunk, couldn't drop anymore. And when everybody else had left, I walked up and I gave him my test and I said, you don't need to grade it, it's a zero. And in this kindness, he stopped me and he said, now hold on a second. He said, you know, we value student athletes around here and I went to college on an academic scholarship and one semester I had to work and when I did my grades dropped, so I have a lot of respect for what you do. And he took that test, he crumbled it up, he threw it in the trash can and he said, let's just say that one doesn't exist. How's that work for you? Why don't you study for a week, I'll help you out with the notes and you can come back in and take the test. Didn't count it against me. What I earned was a big fat zero. I earned what should have been on my account was an F. And he didn't count it against me. And that was glorious. But how much more our final exam when we stand before the Lord and that exam's eternal. Because let's be clear, we walk in with these big fat Fs on our name. And here, the one who's blessed is the one that God does not credit that to our account. This is the blessed state David is talking about. And again, he makes the comprehensive sweep of God's forgiveness clear. Our sins are taken away. They are completely covered. They are not credited to our accounts. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Now, if Perhaps you're sitting there thinking theologically, redemptive historically. When I say redemptive historically, that means kind of trying to put your whole Bible together. What I just said does raise a challenging theological question. The question is this, how? It's not the how question we're inclined to answer because of our cultural upbringing. The question is, how can a holy and just God forgive sin? and still be just. We prefer the wrong question, don't we? Even in the church, certainly outside the church, but even in the church, our question we love to ask is, how can a loving God judge anyone? But search the scriptures. The Bible nowhere, not one time, struggles with that question. It wrestles with the question, how can a just God forgive one single individual person? Does not God's forgiveness of a sinner like David, the very writer of this psalm, does that not call into question God's perfect justice? I mean, how can God forgive David? You might say, well, he was a pretty good guy. Pretty sure if you get the scales out with David and, you know, weigh his life, he's got more in the good than in the bad. And after all, doesn't God say he's a man after God's own heart? All right. But let's not forget that David was an adulterer and a murderer. How might Uriah's family, if you don't know the story, Uriah is the dad, no, 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 Uriah is the husband of Bathsheba, this guy that David commits adultery with. How might Uriah's family feel about the righteousness of God if God just lets David off the hook? Put yourself in those shoes. Imagine a court of law, redo this situation here, where someone kills your son, trying to cover his tracks because he impregnates your daughter-in-law. And imagine in that situation, the judge says, "Eh, he's a pretty good guy. Put the scales up and more good than, than bad. 
After all, he's a man after my own heart. I'm just going to let him go. Would you like that? How would you feel about that judge? Is that just? This is the very important question that we must be clear on. And you know, the answer to this question points us directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3, what theologians refer to as the center of our Bible, Romans 3. It's not the center because it's in the middle, that's Isaiah, but it's in the center because everything comes together at this text. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. Context, if you know this passage, is he's laying it out. No one is righteous, not one single human being is righteous. And so in verse 21, he says, But now the righteousness of God, that is God's saving righteousness, has been manifested, has been made known apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So he's saying David's bearing witness to this. The, the Old Testament is bearing witness to what he's about to say. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. It's an important theological word, made, made right with God, are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, another big important theological word, that is the assuaging of the wrath of God God put forward, put Jesus forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Remember, the whole question is, how can God be righteous? This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, think of the language, His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. He's talking about Old Testament saints, right? Writer of Hebrews, the blood of goats and bulls didn't ultimately and finally cleanse people. It was part of God's process, but, but he's passing over ultimately. And, and he says in verse 26, this was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that God might be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Paul makes it crystal clear. God has never simply winked at sin. And Old Testament saints like David and Abraham and Moses and all other Old Testament saints were never simply let off the hook. No, see, Paul's point is the cross was always in view, which is the only way God could forgive such sinners. God postponed the full penalty due for sin, which of course is eternal punishment in hell, so that those like David and Abraham and Jacob could stand before him forgiven even before he provided ultimate satisfaction of the demands of his own justice. For God, who is perfectly righteous to forgive anyone, you had to have the cross. Tom Schreiner in his commentary on Romans rightly points out that the question at stake in Romans 3 is just what I said earlier, how can God justly forgive anyone? And the only answer, the only answer is through the cross of Christ. The promise of the cross, faith in the promise of the cross is how Old Testament saints were saved, and the fulfillment of that in the new. This is how God 
was able to carry away our sin, cover our sin, not credit our sin to our account, as David describes and rejoices in back in Psalm 32. It's because all of the sin of all those who trust in Christ was nailed to the cross with Jesus, whether Old Testament saints who were trusting in the promise or those of us on this side of the cross, all of our hope of sin forgiven centers around the cross where God nailed our sin with his son. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Flip over to Colossians chapter 2. Such a glorious text here. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Here's how. Having forgiven all of our trespasses. And then he tells us how he did that. Having forgiven all of our trespasses, here's how, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We could spend all day on this passage, but have time only to focus on what Paul describes as this certificate of debt with its legal demands that stands against us. And I want you to take special notice that he's using emphatic language to show the degree to which this certificate of debt actually stood against us, and that he says it in two different ways. And sadly, I know there's a lot of ESVs in here, and I love the ESV, but the, unfortunately, the ESV doesn't show us this. In fact, I have no idea why they left out the second clause here, except maybe to smooth it out into English. But if you read the New American Standard, it's redundant. If you read the NIV, it's redundant. It's, it's what's in the original. In the New American Standard, for example, he says, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. So there are decrees against us, which was hostile to us. NIV, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. So what he's talking about stood against us and actually condemned us. So, so again, the nature to which this, this record of debt stood against us is, is, is emphatic. But what is it? What's he, what's he talking about? Well, what is this record of debt? I see this shows how, how Jesus is fulfilling Psalm 32. Paul, Paul's using a word picture for us of a legal document that all human beings have signed. And in, in the Roman world, this, this record of debt would have been a, a, a written note of indebtedness that had to be paid off in full. You might think of it as a legally binding IOU. And in this picture, we've all signed this IOU to God. And what do we all owe God? Well, how about complete allegiance? He's the creator of the world. He created us. He created us with a purpose. He created us to worship Him. He created us to, to live for Him. So this, this record of debt or this IOU is a picture of the reality that all of mankind was to give total, perfect allegiance to God but, but this is against us, Paul says. And the reason it's against us, even hostile to us, is because of the legal demands. And this word translated legal demands is almost certainly referring to God's perfect standard as found in His written word. And the only other time Paul uses this word is Ephesians 2.15, where it's clearly referring to the commandments of the Old Testament. And yet, I think Doug Moo is probably correct in his commentary when he asserts, quote, while Colossians lacks any reference to the Mosaic Law, 
it would be typical of Pauline theology of the law to extend the word to include all those decrees of God that regulate human conduct, whether found in the law of Moses or more generally in God's revelation to all human beings. And there he cites, Moose cites Romans 1.32, which of course says, although they know the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So putting all this together, Paul's saying, all of us, you, me, all of us, had this IOU of complete allegiance to God that we failed to keep. And, and, and as a result, his perfect standard, as revealed in both the Mosaic law, to a lesser extent, the law of our own conscience, stands against us and actually condemns us. The picture that Paul's wanting you to see is a written document of what God expects of us with all of our sin standing right next to it, every single one of them. Easy to see why that document's hostile to us. And yet, don't miss that Paul says God has wiped that clean. A total cleansing of the slate. We had this insurmountable amount of legal debt standing against us, ready to condemn us for all eternity. And we see here that those who are in Christ, God has taken it away. He has completely removed it. He did so nailing it to the cross. And here then there's another word picture. This one's a picture of the legal charges that stood against those who were crucified, right? We know from history that that's usually how they did it. Somebody was crucified and the charges were nailed to the cross. Remember across Jesus' cross, it said, Jesus, the King of the Jews. Paul's telling us here from a divine perspective, that's not all that was written on that cross. No, Paul's saying every single sin of every single believer, every one of my sins, every one of your sins, if you're in Christ, was on that legal document. It was nailed to the cross. In a moment, we'll sing one of my favorite songs, It's Well With My Soul. And the third verse captures this so beautifully. My sin, oh the bliss, of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, the whole. is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. If you're here this morning and you're in Christ, every single sin, past, present, and future has been forgiven and removed as far as the east is from the west because it was nailed to the cross, and on the cross it was paid in full. And please, church, don't ever let familiarity deaden your amazement of that reality. This is how God can forgive the sins of His people and yet not let the guilty go free. This is why Jesus had to go to the cross, because it was on the cross where, as we talked about last week, God's holiness went public. It was on the cross where God uniquely upholds both His justice and His mercy. It was God's perfect justice that demanded that sin be punished 
and His unbelievable love and mercy that led Him to crush His own Son in your place. And friends, we'll never plumb the depths of the glory and majesty of the cross. I can assure you, none of us would have ever dreamed it up, and yet we see here the wisdom and power and glory of God on stunning display. And what's more, we must remember, we've done absolutely nothing to earn this. If you go back to Psalm 32, we see that this blessed state that David speaks of, of having our sins forgiven, thus being right with God, is by faith. In fact, if you'll flip over to Romans 4 with me, we're just in Romans 3, flip over to Romans 4 with me, and I want you to see that Paul actually quotes from this exact passage as he's laying out his argument that sinners like us are justified, made right with God by faith and not works, starting in verse 1, Romans 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? It says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not credited as a gift, but as is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works, here's Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. See, the blessing of being counted righteous apart from works what we refer to as the, the, the doctrine of justification by faith is interwoven with this idea of God's forgiveness. It's by faith that our sins are forgiven. We can't earn that. And we're, we're forgiven completely when we trust in the Lord Jesus. And see, now we can better understand why David, back in our psalm, says, blessed, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. This is the blessing he's talking about of a sinner who deserves punishment, being made right with a perfectly holy, righteous God, and now being in that blessed state where not only he's no longer against you, but praise God, now he's for you. And for believers, this is glorious and worthy of rejoicing in, which is a point to which we'll return. But for now, I want you to flip back to Psalm 32 because I want to consider one more point here as we consider Psalm 32. Psalm 32, look back at verses 1 through 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now that last statement, in whose spirit there's no deceit, is important to the flow and meaning of this psalm. Point is that those who are blessed are those who come to God in humility. Those who come to God hat in hand. Those who come to God and genuinely confess all their sin because they're clear. Like Isaiah last week, woe is me, I am done. I am a sinner and I live amongst a bunch of sinners. See, God knows the spirit of a man. He knows the difference between genuine confession and repentance of sin 
and the deceitfulness of confessing maybe part of your sin and blaming others for the rest, right? Yeah, I've sinned, but if that person had done that, then I wouldn't have done this. No. God knows the difference. He knows the difference between genuine confession and repentance of sin and simply being regretful over the consequences of sin. I'm sad. I'm brokenhearted. Why? Because my sin put me in this position. God knows the difference between genuine confession and confessing a sin with no real plan to turn from it. You know, punch somebody in the face. Sorry about that. Punch them again. Sorry about that. Punch them. No serious, genuine confession at all. The one who's blessed, inspired writers telling us, is the one who comes broken, empty, hiding nothing. In fact, David goes on to share his personal experience of confession and forgiveness in order to make this more evident. Look at verses 3 through 5. 3 through 5. If you're getting worried about the time, we're ending on 3 through 5. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by heat of summer. And then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David here starts with the pain of harboring sin. And and notice that this pain that he's describing is incessant. He he says, when I kept silent, that is, when I I didn't confess, before I was ready to come clean, when I was trying to hide my sin from others and hide my sin from God, when I I did that, David says, "My, my bones felt like they were wasting away, groaning all day long. Verse 4 gives us the reason He felt as though his bones were wasting away. He says it's because your hand was heavy upon me day and night. He's describing standing stiff-necked under God's conviction and that weighing heavy on him. Don't miss. By the way, what I'm going to say here is not culturally appropriate. I don't care. Don't miss that Holy Scripture's teaching us here that our sin can have physical effects on us. When God's hand is heavy upon us, it can, not saying it always does, but it can reveal itself in depression, anxiety, sleeplessness, a whole host of other undiagnosable physical manifestations, aching in joints, pain, other things, that society would say, we just medicate and cover the real problem. Now, I'm going to get some emails. I'm not at all saying no medication is good or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying we need to take Scripture seriously And Scripture teaches us that we're whole beings. And there's much overlap between our spiritual and physical well-being. And here he says, the one who is stiff-necked, who's not willing to bow the knee before God, who's unrepentant, feels as though his bones are wasting away. He uses graphic language that his strength was dried up as the heat of the summer. 
It's summertime in Texas. And we get a real picture of what that looks like walking around in, say, unwatered grass. Now, some of you have got beautiful lawns this time of year. You water a lot, and I commend you for that. Me, not so much. My grass is brown, and it's crunchy, and my lawn, if you look at the ground underneath it, there's like cracks running through places. It, it, it's, it's hurting, right? It, it's, it's dry. It needs help. And that's the picture David's giving us here. God's loving discipline can at times be like the hot, dry summer climate to our souls. And when we're under this discipline and refuse to repent, our strength dries up like a plant without water. We have no energy. We don't want to do anything. Friends, the picture he's painting is a pathetic picture. That is, <laughs> praise the Lord, until we come to verse 5. In verse 5, in a genuine repentant spirit, David describes his confession of sin. And here he's, he's finally broken. Here he comes and he genuinely bears all before his God and King. Again, the three words for sin are used, and this time they're paired with three words for confession. Look back at verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. See, now David is coming clean. David says, I acknowledged my sin. I covered nothing. We've got to let Jesus cover it. I covered nothing. I confessed it all. And you forgave me. Folks, it is utter foolishness to seek to hide our sin from God. Right? It goes back to the garden. It gives us the picture of Adam and Eve trying to hide from God. And we see in black and white, that's a, that's a fool's errand. We cannot hide our sin from God. Kids, you might, might be able to hide your sin from your parents, though they know a lot more than you think they know. You might be able to hide your sin from your parents for a season. Husbands, wives, you, you might be able to hide your sin from your spouse for a time. We can never, ever, not for a second, hide our sin from God. And we certainly can't cover our own sin. We must let Jesus do that. In 1 John 1, verses 8 through 9, we read, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Do you hear that language? Do you want to be thought of as self-deceived? Do you want to be self-deceived? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But, but, praise the Lord, listen to this. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just. I take that to be faithful to His covenant promise to forgive and just. This is, this is Romans 3 all over again. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. See, if we want to experience that joyful state of being right with God that David describes in this psalm, that joyful state that Jesus came to provide for us, we must come clean. We don't cover our sins. We trust Jesus to do that. And let me just say, there might be some who are here this morning who have never yet trusted in Christ. And this psalm, this whole message, is for you. You, you like everyone sitting around you, needs what Scripture's talking about. You need nothing more when you think eternally, then 
forgiveness before God. And, 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 I, and I hope and I pray that, that God was like opening your eyes to see that Jesus came to provide that very thing. You, you can have that. There's no reason to sit in that awful state of your bones wasting away and drying up. There's no reason to sit theologically in that state where God's wrath is coming down on you like a freight train. There's no reason to stay there. Confess your sin. Believe in what Jesus has done on the cross. And rejoice today that that applies to you by faith. And for believers, I have only one point of application. And it's simple. And you've heard it from the day you came to saving faith, but we need to be reminded of it again and again and again and again. And that is, if you're in Christ, trust that your sins are actually forgiven. Now, you might need to pray. I believe, Lord. Help my unbelief. Right? Some of our biggest struggles in our Christian faith is our lack of faith at this very point. Now, this is where we tend to smuggle in works righteousness. Right? Lord, forgive me. And maybe if I do these three acts of penance, I can be back where I was with you as though somehow you got yourself into right standing with God. No, brother. No, sister. Don't smuggle in works righteousness. No penance. That's unbelief that actually leads to more sin. You say, how does that lead to more sin? Oh, that's easy. Right? You think you've stepped over a threshold and now I've got to work my way back into God's grace. But since I've got to work my way back into God's grace, I may as well let sin abound here for a minute because I'm, I'm already stuck. But if I fall into sin and I confess my sin and I preach the gospel to myself and I'm reminded that God has forgiven that sin and every other sin and He's removed it from His accounting as far as the east is from the west, I don't want to come out of the prayer closet and say, woo, let's let sin abound. I come out of the prayer closet saying, Jesus, thank you. Brothers and sisters, we want to believe the gospel. Believe Jesus came for the forgiveness of your sin and move forward. Confess and believe what we're about to sing. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Let's pray and let's sing. Father, we do thank You for Your amazing grace to us. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning. I pray, help us believe the Gospel. Help us believe the Gospel as we sing the Gospel right now. Help us believe the Gospel as we leave this place today. Help us believe the Gospel as we fall flat on our face on Wednesday. Help us to believe the Gospel as we walk through life's struggles. And I pray for my unbelieving friends. Oh, Lord, would You open their eyes even this morning. Cause them to believe the Gospel. Cause them to be born again. Cause them to rejoice in Christ as Savior. We thank You. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.